a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. I don't know if you are a longtime wrong thinker, maybe just dipping your toes in it for the very first time. But I'm going to make a pretty confident assertion here. You are in the right place. If you are someone who is looking for truth, if you're someone who's looking for a reason to stand tall and be counted, I, uh, I want to encourage you to do so. In fact, I, I want to start out with one of the most inspirational things that I have seen in a while. Um, I, this, this popped up on Twitter or X, whichever you prefer, uh, just the other day. And I don't, well, I spend more time on there than I really should. But I have to say that this was, this was one of the best comments. It's from AJK. This is, she's a writer that I, I came to uh, really appreciate early on in all the COVID madness. Because as a writer, AJK was one of the people who really did a great job of pointing out, here's when you're encountering narrative. Here you can tell just by looking at a headline. If there's judgment-laden words, if there are adjectives that appeal to your emotions, chances are you are not looking at uh, objective journalism, but you're looking at an attempt to steer you in the direction of whatever the writer wants you to go. So in response to a post on, on X from Dr. Simon Goddick, he says, please just give me one compelling reason to keep fighting for our freedom. When I see so many once trusted allies sacrificing their integrity for mere financial gain, it's disheartening. It leaves me questioning whether my struggle can even make a difference. Okay, now this is a medical doctor concerned with uh, what he sees as a lot of colleagues selling out because, well, you know, in the short term, it's much more profitable to go along with what's happening here than to stand firm. But the question he asks is something that all of us, regardless of our credentials, have probably contemplated. And that is, does my struggle, does anything that I'm doing even make a difference? So when he says, please give me one compelling reason, this is AJK's response. Her response is, your integrity, a well or a principled life, well lived. That's the reason. And it's the only thing they can't take away from you. Fight until you're the only one standing and be ready to die on the hill. You won't be alone. She says, I'll be there too. That's a, that's a, I know it's a little bit stark. What, really? Die on the hill? Oh no, but I want you to think about this for a few moments, just in, in the context of, is there anything in my life that, that is so important or that I hold so dear, so precious even sacred, that I'd be willing to risk whatever. I mean, I'm, obviously, I'd be willing to risk my life. For some people, that's a pretty big leap, right? Well, now, let's not get radical, right? Now, you sound like one of them suicidal, you know, maniacs out there. <laughs> okay, so let's start with something small. Would you be willing to risk your standing among uh, people of status in your society by standing up for your conscience? Would you be willing to risk your good name 
Would you be willing to risk business opportunities knowing that people might shun you because you hold to a certain principle? Would you be willing to risk your reputation? Would you be willing to risk your freedom? Now, I can't answer those questions for you, but I, I can tell you this. The way things are headed, every one of us is going to have to come to grips with the possibility that any of those things might, might be the price for standing on principle. And I'm not saying this like, oh, and it's just easy. Just choose the right principle and <laughs> let the consequences fall where they may. It's painful. When you have family or friends or colleagues or larger society turn its back on you and treat you like a pariah, do you still have the conviction to stand firm? Is, is a peaceful conscience more important to you than the approval of the people who want you to fall into line. Now, believe it or not, all of us have had opportunities to do this in small ways generally. And if there was one good thing that came out of the COVID pandemic and the, the various mandates, particularly the jab mandates that, that followed it, this is one of the good things, is a lot of people were put to the test and I'm going to focus on the ones who found that they did have the courage to make that choice. I think about the individuals who, you know, gave up their job rather than submit to a medical procedure they did not want and would would and they refused to consent to. This really bothers those who have a controlling nature and feel like it's their prerogative to tell us, you know, exactly what we should do. I'll give you an example of this. <clears throat> Just before the weekend, there was a story published uh, by, I think it was the Boise television station. And they were talking about a Washington state firefighter who was apparently just uh, arrested and charged with some January 6th offense. Now, of course, you understand. People who are being charged with January 6th offenses are not necessarily actual insurrectionists or even rioters. If you so much as walked into the Capitol, they were going to come after you, and they will continue. In fact, you don't even have to have walked into the Capitol, and we've just been told, we will come after you. That, that's according to uh, one of the, the U.S. attorneys by the name of Graves. But I thought it was very interesting that the news media, in reporting on this Washington-area firefighter, you know, is, is uh, arrested for you know, this, but they, they prefaced his arrest announcement with, who refused to take the vaccine... Arrested for January 6th offense. <laughs> Why is it important that they point out that this guy refused to take the vaccine? Because to them, that's, that's a form of heresy. That's, that is rebellion. They'd probably call it anarchy, but they'd think it was an insult when it's really not. <laughs> Nonetheless, that's the kind of stuff we're up against. And my point is simply this. If, you, uh, if you're feeling discouraged... It's totally normal. Any of us would feel discouraged. And we do get discouraged from time to time because it feels like sometimes we are just fighting this uphill battle that's not making a difference. And I'm going to sound a little bit mystical when I tell you this, but we don't always understand or comprehend where our influence reaches or, or the impact that it's having. 
Sometimes there are observers that are mostly out of sight or out of earshot, but nonetheless see what we are doing or hear what we are saying and drawing strength from it. So when it comes to your integrity and a principled life, well-lived, that is the goal. That's why we do this. It's not for political points. It's not for, yes, we want to be over the, you know, having control over the people around us. That's the thing we're resisting. And when AJ cases are, are principled, well-lived life, our integrity, these are the things that cannot be taken away from us. So I don't think it's radical at all when she says you fight till you're the only one standing and be ready to die on the hill. And when she says you won't be alone, I'll be there too. We need to hear that. We need to not just, you know, hear it, but we need to feel that in our bones. There are people who are standing with us. No, they may not be in our immediate vicinity or they may not be readily, you know, discernible to us. But there are others who think like you do, for whom the truth matters more than personal comfort, more than their attachment to their own beliefs, more than their desire to be seen as approvable and acceptable and worthy of the accolades of society. I don't want to sound like a contrarian, but... These days, it seems like if society generally, if the masses are singing your praises, you got to reconsider what you're doing. You might just be on a really dangerous path if what you're doing is so easily approved by everybody else. Now, this isn't to suggest, you know, because we're better than everybody else. We are, we're a cut above. Nope. We're just people who recognize what the truth is and make it a priority even when it's painful even when living up to it requires some pretty significant sacrifice, including the possibility of stepping away from polite society and perhaps paying a price by being a pariah of sorts because no matter what they say, our conscience is telling us this is the right thing to do. Like I say, a lot of us have been through this at some level thanks to a lot of the the COVID nonsense. It's going to get tougher And just know that you're not alone. It's one of the reasons I do this show, so people have somewhere to turn to realize I really have allies more than I know. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I want to give a quick shout-out to my sponsors who make this program possible. They include LifesavingFood.com, TMCPNation.com, QuiltAndSew.com, and also Ironsight Brewing Company. That's IronsightBC.com. That's my friend John Harvey. It's a subscription coffee company that he just started up um, just within the last few months. And if you're a coffee drinker, maybe you should consider this. Because we're talking a lot of great uh, varieties of coffee, some cool swag. But here's the best part. Fresh from the roaster to your cup within 72 hours. So if you want to find out more, click on the link that I provide in my show notes. You'll find them at thebrianhydeshow.com. So 
<sighs> sure had my share of global warming this weekend, I'll tell you what. Uh, we had a literal blizzard Friday and Saturday. Um, Saturday night to Sunday, I'll bet you we picked up about a foot of snow plus 20 to 30 mile an hour winds. And I'm telling you, the drifts were epic. And it's it's been a while since I've been through a really good dump of snow combined with drifting snow. And I, I'll admit, I forgot how much it sucks moving snow just to shovel a path to my chickens and to, uh, you know, shovel a way to open up their coop and, you know, a place where I could put down grain for them. Man, that's exhausting. I, I just, uh, I love snow right up until I have to shovel it or drive in it. Oh, and I spent way more than enough time over the weekend uh, getting cars stuck and unstuck in my driveway. What fun that was. But, you know, it's all part of the adventure. Anyway, like I say, sure got a lot of global warming here. It's funny because at a uh, Vivek Ramaswamy event and also a uh, uh, Ron DeSantis event in Iowa, uh, a group of little environmental radicals uh, featuring uh, one of the media darlings from here in Idaho. It's a, it's a young man. Um, oh, what is his name? Riva? Shiva? I can't remember now. Uh, I'm sorry, I don't have it here in front of me, but... He was elected to the school board of trustees in Boise as a senior. And boy, this, this kid, the press just loves him. Oh, he's a great, he, he has since graduated. Now he's going to school. Um, but uh, this kid is a, is a true believer in climate change. And so he uh, violently storms the stage while Ron DeSantis is talking, uh, holding up a banner about, Ron, is a, he's a climate criminal because he accepts money from fossil fuels and, or fossil fuel makers. And anyway, pretty interesting stuff. One of the things they were screaming is, the world is burning up. The world is boiling. As they're wearing their winter coats and their hats and so forth. And as I'm sitting here taking breaks between shoveling snow to consider, boy, I sure wish you'd do a little more burning up right here because, frankly, I'm, I'm getting worn out. Anyway, uh, just another reason, you know, when the press really gets behind somebody, that's, uh, that's sometimes a good reason to question them. And this young man, who, who I think he really comes across as a pretty intelligent young guy, but uh, ideologically, he is the product of hardcore left-wing grooming that uh, turns kids into activists. And, and in this case, uh, I think we have a little violent revolutionary on our hands. It's going to be interesting to see how, uh, how that all shakes out. Anyway, let me uh, turn to something a little more positive. I feel like I'm complaining a bit. Um, I want to talk to you a little bit about uh, some advice as we go into the new year. And, I, and I'm turning to Barry Brownstein. And again, I'm going to encourage you, if you have not been to his Mind Shifts Essays, his mind, Mindset Shifts Essays. Sorry, I want to get this right. Mindsetshifts.substack.com. You will find these to be immensely empowering, uplifting messages, uh, like the one here. I want to just hit a couple of excerpts. This is from an essay called How Not to Go to Seed in 2024. Now you're thinking to yourself, what do you mean? We're only two weeks into the year. How could I possibly be going to seed? But, but the subtitle is, there's never a time that you have arrived. And he starts with a quote from Bob C. Wright's in instructive essay on financial forecasting, which says, quote, we will never live, or we will never act, rather, with perfect foresight. We will rarely act with decent foresight. Living with uncertainty, after all, remains the essence of the human condition. 
We will always have to navigate challenging and changing conditions, relying on experience, training, instinct, and imperfect assumptions. Prone to our old familiar flaws, chiefly our never-failing propensity to discount the future. End quote. And Barry says, Seawright's warning is essential. We may not be able to forecast the future, but we can be aware of a cognitive bias almost all of us share. Namely, we will put off what really needs to be done in favor of shallow rewards in the present. We will, for example, binge watch our favorite series instead of reading a book. Or we watch Sunday football all day and ignore our children. We're abrupt with a customer service agent because we don't recognize their humanity if they don't meet our needs. And he says one of the reasons that uh, he's starting the mind, Mindset Shifts You with uh, Marcus Aurelius's timeless and priceless meditations is that Aurelius constantly reminded himself of his tendency to discount the future. Admonishments such as, before long I shall be dead, appear often not in a morbid way, but as a reminder to live according to his principles today, not tomorrow. No matter what the world brings us in 2024, Barry says we can live according to our principles and nature. I really hope you'll take a look at this essay. I want you to discover this on your own. But uh, this is, he tells the story of Roger Bannister. You remember this? The guy who who broke the, uh, what did he break? Was it the five-minute mile, the four-minute mile? I got to look again here. Yeah, the four-minute mile. It wasn't possible. Nobody could do it. The human body just simply isn't made for for that kind of speed until Roger Bannister did it. And how many times since then has that record fallen? In fact, uh, Barry shares a a quote from another great English runner and Olympic champion, Sebastian Coe, explaining the belief barrier that Roger Bannister had to break. He said not only was it seen as a physiological, physical, mental barrier— but learned treaties in learned treaties in medical journals basically saying if anyone tries this, there's a chance they may lose their life in the process. I mean, that's like taking don't run with scissors. Or, don't try to run faster than a four-minute mile while you'll kill yourself. And back in 1954, Bannister broke that belief barrier. I think there's some very solid advice here, though. And and look, I'm I'm one of the worst. When things start to go really well or really start to gain some traction, that's when I want to steer as squarely as possible back into the comfort zone. That's because, you know, well, I must have arrived. You know, I can finally stop toiling. But I'm learning, you know, as uh, contrary to what I grew up believing, somehow I thought life was going to get easier, more simple, less complicated, you know, more pleasurable and, and uh, less achy. <laughs> I wasn't really achy as a kid, but I did not count on this part. Anyway, I thought it was all going to get easier as I went, and that's not the case. The difficulty level seems to increase. The stakes seem higher than ever before. But if I look around and appreciate what it took to get to where I am today, and I'm talking as a person, as an individual, Improvement over myself from yesterday or from five years ago or 10 years ago or 40 years ago. There's definitely been some growth. And the the most significant moments of personal development. I mean, I'm getting better at connecting the lines here. and, And sure enough, every one of them took place outside of my comfort zone. Now, 
you know, most of you, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming, probably have realized this far before I did. It took me a long time to, to get with the program and realize this is how life works. So when change comes along or difficulty comes along, yeah, I may get frustrated. I might even say a few cuss words, but I've learned to lean into it. As, as uh, my friends who've served in the military have, have advised you, embrace the suck and just continue moving forward. And while it's miserable at the time, going through the uh, difficulty that leads to growth, there is another side that you come out on it eventually. And if you can stop and look at yourself, you can be grateful for all the opportunities that that hardship provided. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's dive into a couple of different topics here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pose a question to you. Do you have a duty to remain loyal to someone who abuses you? Now, I'm talking abuse, not just, well, they said something once or they corrected me and that made me feel bad. I'm talking like a true on abusive relationship. Do you have a duty to remain loyal? Now, before you answer that question, I want you to consider J.B. Shirk's essay, We Are in an Abusive Relationship with Our Government. Here's some of the examples that he gives to illustrate what he's saying. He says, California is now covering the costs of genital mutilating surgeries for illegal aliens. Well, of course they are. Leftism's slippery slope invariably leads to depraved absurdity. Consider how Governor Receding Hairdo and Pyrite State's other communist saboteurs have greased the shifting ground under Californians' feet. One, there is no illegal immigration crisis. Two, there may be a crisis, but California taxpayers won't be paying for it. Three, taxpayers may have to foot the bill for the illegal immigration crisis, but California will do nothing to incentivize illegal immigration. Four, after further review, these aliens aren't illegal, but rather undocumented. Five, health care is a human right. Six, California must provide undocumented aliens health care. Seven, mutilating the genitals to make them look like the opposite sex is health care. Eight, California taxpayers must pay for undocumented aliens' genital surgery. Nine, Californians who object to paying for undocumented aliens' genital surgery may be guilty of hate crimes and will be prosecuted. I don't know if that's a slippery slope so much as a carpeted stairway, but it definitely seems to lead to the same place. J.B. Shirk asks, why punish the people who illegally enter the United States when you can punish the people who do not want to subsidize immigration crimes while canceling their votes with the votes of those here illegally? Why should health care stop with free genital mutilation for the whole planet? Why not label spacious split-level homes with at least one electric vehicle in each garage health care as well? Why shouldn't California taxpayers be on the hook for each new illegal alien's green energy lifestyle? He says the absurdity will never end. As Sundance frequently arrives, re- reminds rather readers over at the conservative treehouse, we are in an abusive relationship with our government. And in California, where the Marxist globalists rule with absolute power, the government never gets tired of slapping American citizens around and telling them it's for their own good. 
He says California's decision to become a mecca for foreign men who just want to chop off their willies and hang out in, in women's restrooms is just the latest example of government insanity promoted as progress. While foreign nationals are invading the United States in unprecedented numbers, Department of Homeland Insecurity Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas continues to claim that there is no crisis of any kind, and if there is a crisis, Congress should just allocate more money for the Department of Homeland Security to quickly bust the invaders into small towns throughout the country. Hear that, American citizens? The problem isn't that tens of millions of foreigners are illegally entering the country. The problem is that people are noticing the problem, which would quickly disappear if Department of Homeland Security had the funds to hide the invaders more effectively and seed them into the counties where illegal votes from illegal aliens will do Democrats the most good. Canceling American votes one invader at a time, yet none dare call it election rigging on a massive scale. Dang, that's, that's pretty direct, but I, I don't see any place where he's in error. Mayorka's admission that his plan to tackle illegal immigration consists of, number one, making it worse, but number two, hiding it more effectively, is another infuriating example of why governments of any kind can never be trusted. The best that any civilized society can do is shackle government power so severely that its agents feel as if they're rotting away in a dark dungeon without any prospect of public glory. That's why our founders worked so hard to write a constitution that limits the power of all the miscreants who inevitably end up running things. After all, at its core, government is nothing more than a collection of unethical people given legal immunity for performing otherwise criminal acts. That may be one of the best definitions I think I've ever read. Now, J.B. Shirk says in addition, in exchange rather, for a little law and order, prosperity and peace, the people look the other way while government bureaucrats steal their money through taxes, intimidate them with threats of force, a.k.a. the uh, FBI Gestapo, and occasionally sacrifice their children for the greater good, war. As soon as government is celebrated as something wonderful instead of something that should always be dreaded and despised, those same bureaucrats break free from their dungeons, anoint themselves as unaccountable kings, and devise the most elaborate schemes to pillage, plunder, and endanger the citizenry without remorse. No tax is too high. No government mandate or regulatory fiat is too grotesque. No life is too precious for the spoils of endless, needless war. In Majorca's world, bureaucrats bark orders, citizens comply, the government tells you what you may own, and armed IRS agents confiscate the rest. And so he asks, how has the freest nation on earth been reduced to a population of citizen slaves begging for government scraps? America's tyrants use the same two-pronged approach that all totalitarian regimes do. The U.S. government lies about everything while intentionally inflicting emotional harm on its citizens. Everything that unscrupulous government agents such as Mayorkas shove down Americans' throats is part of a psychological war meant to enfeeble, confuse, dispirit, and infantilize the adult population while indoctrinating younger generations to accept absurdities, surrender to woke ideology, and refrain from ever questioning authoritarian elites. That's why popular actors, musicians, and athletes must all believe the same thing lest they be summarily canceled. It's absolutely essential that young minds see intellectual conformity as something to celebrate and dissent as something to abhor. It's why presidential puppet Joe Biden likes to say, we're all in this together, 
while simultaneously stigmatizing half the electorate as domestic terrorists who threaten democracy. Critical thinking, artistic individualism, philosophical disagreement, and public debate are not tolerated in totalitarian regimes. In an essay for the Brownstone Institute, Jeffrey Tucker describes his experience at a train station where prominent warning signs still command travelers to obey COVID's strict social distancing requirements. Now, for the most part, people just ignore the government's orders and went about their lives. After pondering the enormous disjunction between what we are told to do and what we actually do, Tucker concludes that the edicts to which no one complies serve a certain purpose. They are a visual reminder of who is in charge, what those people believe, and the presence of a sort of Damocles hanging above the whole population. And at any point, anyone can be snatched away from normal life, made a criminal, and be forced to pay a price. In a psychological war meant to obtain total control over citizen behavior, the nuttier the edicts, the more effective the message. Writer Kit Knightley aptly describes these nutty edicts as part of the government's broader propaganda campaign to, cult- to-, to cultivate a perfidious unreality, where our authoritarian ruling elite promulgate insane narratives that serve as both loyalty test and humiliation ritual. When government agents say something that is impossible to believe and people accept it as true, nonetheless, then citizens demonstrate greater loyalty to the government's absurd fabrications than to reality. Humiliation is the ultimate demonstration of control because under a system where nothing is true, anything could be. Knightley concludes that the government engages in psychopathic behavior meant to do one thing, break every citizen's spirit and mind. Now, J.B. Shirk says what this means is that fighting for human liberty against the government's encroaching totalitarianism requires more than civil disobedience. It requires an acceptance that everything our government says is a lie, and everything our government does is destructive. The U.S. government, along with most Western governments, have been captured by central banks, spy agencies, and an international cabal of Marxist elites and it's dedicated to destroying any notion of objective truth. That's why we're told that biological sex is a social construct, that private property causes climate change, and that popular political movements are undemocratic. To free our bodies, he says, we must free our minds. And to free our countries, we must work to free the minds of as many of our fellow citizens as we can. He says, when the battlefield is the human brain, revolutionary ideas are more important than bullets. And if I could borrow a line from uh, V for Vendetta, ideas are bulletproof. I'll give you an example. I know there's a lot of controversy. The Iowa caucuses are taking place tonight, and uh, this is... uh, there's a lot of controversy within the Republican Party. Are you a never Nikki Haley? Are you you know going going to go for uh, Vivek Ramaswamy or Ron DeSantis? Or are you going to go for Donald Trump? Just keep in mind that uh, Trump may be the most hated figure by the establishment, but he is not the be-all, end-all of liberty or resisting those who wish to basically lock us down mentally for the rest of our lives. He's a figurehead at this point. I'm not trying to denigrate the man, but I'm just saying, even if he were out of the picture, the desire to resist and to live in objective reality would remain. In other words, all our hopes aren't just hanging on him.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Man, so much to talk about, so little time. Well, we'll we'll make the best of this final segment of today's show. Three articles that I would like to bring to your attention. You know, living in the past is a waste of time. But when you understand what happened in the past, that's actually essential to knowing where we are today. With that, I want to recommend an article from Roger Kimball. This was originally published in the Epic Times. I picked it up off of ZeroHedge.com. The Orwellian assault on the past continues. Just a couple of quick excerpts. He starts with a line from uh, from George Orwell. Who controls the past controls the future. Who controls the present controls the past. That line from George Orwell's 1984 might serve as a sort of motto for the woke apparatchiks who run our lives today. Roger Kimball says, because uh, perhaps it's because they have, as one wag put it, mistaken Orwell's stern admonition about the dangers of totalitarianism for a how-to manual. In any event, the present's attack on the past by those holding the reins of power continues apace. The goal is to revamp the future by redefining the past. And he, he goes into some detail here about how, isn't it interesting that uh, we're seeing, you know, anything that uh, alludes to the fact that the Confederacy once existed or that it once separated itself from the Union because it uh, wanted self-determination, at least it, it wanted its states to be able to determine for themselves what direction they would go. We can't acknowledge that. I mean, the, the statues that are being taken down, the, the streets that are being renamed, schools being renamed, and so forth. It's an attack on the past for failing to live up to our contemporary notions of virtue, but it's also a very clear rewriting of history. And Orwell saw where this kind of thinking ends. He wasn't talking just about the Confederacy when he wrote 1984. But when he warns in 1984, every record has been destroyed or falsified. Every book rewritten, every picture has been repainted. Every statue and street and building has been renamed. Every date has been altered. And that process is continuing day by day and minute by minute. History has stopped. You got to ask yourself, well, you know, as as long as we're, we're getting rid of everything that might have ever been associated with slavery. By the way, good luck dismantling the pyramids. I'll wish you luck on that. It may take a while. Where are they going to stop? I don't think it's wrong to to point out that the ultimate goal is we've got to get rid of the Constitution. Why? Well, it was written by slave-owning people or people who lived in a time when there was slavery. Therefore, nothing could be valid, and this is where they betray their ignorance. Constitution's not perfect, by the way. The anti-federalists, most of their concerns were right on the money. But this is about erasing the past, denying us the future, and as Orwell put it, there's only a present in which the party, and by which I mean the Communist Party, is always right. Anyway, great article from Roger Kimball. Strongly recommend it for your reading. There's also a great one here from the American Institute for Economic Research. This is from Dr. Kimberly Josephson. 
And I didn't catch this, although I've seen a couple of different articles. Um, Tucker Carlson, I guess, really went on a rant about uh, dollar stores. And he portrayed it as, well, you know, uh, dollar stores are uh, apparently they're, they're ugly and they're evil. Anything that's ugly is evil. They, they make America grotesque and they, they basically create, you know, low income or low, uh, low mobility communities. In fact, he says the dollar store is a sort of symbol for your total lack of control over where you live and over the imposition of aggressively in-your-face ugly structures that send one message to you. Namely, you mean nothing. You are a consumer, not a human being or a citizen. And Dr. Kimberly Josephson really does a great job of taking that apart. She's, she's not just bagging on, on Carlson, but she's exposing, hey, there is a, there's a benefit to dollar stores that he's not seeing. And rather than uh, creating, you know, economically depressed communities, they serve economically depressed communities or, or poorer communities. I mean, how long have dollar stores been around? Dollar, dollar General, Dollar Tree, Inc., she says, were founded in the 1950s. Not for the purpose of making America grotesque, but... They've been around for generations, and they have provided services and products to interested consumers. I don't know about you. I will go to the dollar store. If there's something I'm looking for and I can't find it in a pinch, that's where I'll go. Yes, I like Costco, but, man, I can't get out of Costco without spending, you know, 100 or 200 bucks. it seems. So Dr. Kimberly Josephson says, you know, Dollar General State Admission is serving others every day by providing access to affordable products and services for its, cons- for its customers, career opportunities for its employees, and literacy and education support for its hometown communities. I don't know about you, but I'm finding it pretty tough to read into that as well. It's, a, it's an ugly imposition to remind us of our place in the world. Every small community that I have lived in or around. It's always been a positive thing when, when a dollar store opens up. But you have choices. And I love how, how Kimberly Josephson puts this. She says, economic systems should be studied and assessed. Individuals should enable and empower themselves to change the situations that they're in. Her point being that dollar stores don't create low-income households. They serve them. Nobody should be ashamed shopping at a dollar store. No dollar store should be shunned for providing products and services to interested customers. She says a good place to start is stop taking your cues from Tucker Carlson. Shop wherever your needs are best met. Do your best to help the economy around you thrive. And if Carlson wants to voice his opinion about how ugly and evil that is, well, then he can. And we can choose to disagree. That's why America is so beautiful. And so are some dollar stores. Interesting. All right, one final article. This is the article of the day. And, uh, boy, this is a great one. If you want to understand the magnitude of the tyranny that was unleashed upon us during COVID, there are a lot of good resources out there, but Jeffrey Tucker, writing for the Brownstone Institute, recommends three books to end the silence. Now, why would you have to find time in your busy schedule to even consider reading these books? Okay, he says, well, think of this. In the time since the COVID crisis has passed, no aspect of any federal power that was deployed to wreck a functioning society has been repealed. Not one law, regulation, edict, 
or power. Now, some courts have struck down certain bureaucratic practices, such as the nationwide mask mandate and the eviction moratorium, which were respectively huge attacks on bodily autonomy as well as property rights. Those were ruled inadmissible at tremendous expense to plaintiffs. Otherwise, the bureaucracy, though, has not budged an inch. At the onset of this disaster, the CDC simply started posting edicts. They got carried away with washing hands and staying home, or they started, rather, with washing hands and staying at home if you were sick. But then they got carried away. They needed, every business had to have stay-at-home policies, canceled meetings, posted signs, warning of omnipresent danger, sanitizer stations everywhere. No sharing of pens and scissors, plexiglass everywhere. Yeah, remember those dark days? So there are three books he recommends that will help you get a sense of everything that was done and why we cannot allow ourselves to be taken back to that. The first one is uh, Our Enemy, the Government by Ramesh Thakur, which he says is the most scientifically sophisticated yet accessible account of the amazing screw-ups of public health during this period. And keep in mind that the policy response was mostly the same all over the world except for a few nations. Next comes Rand Paul's Deception. Now, not only is he a medical doctor, but he's actually a smart guy, raised by one of the very best, and he was never intimidated by Anthony Fauci's pseudoscientific gobbledygook. In fact, he saw right through it from the very beginning. And then finally, he recommends The Wuhan Cover-Up by Robert F. Kennedy Jr., and he says this is actually a much more focused and tighter work than his previous book on Fauci. Jeffrey Tucker says, I swear that anyone who grabs it and reads it will never think about government the same way. It's that powerful and comprehensive. At issue for Kennedy is the U.S. bioweapons program that started after the Second World War and continues to this day. It's responsible for vast corruption, the empowerment and entanglement of pharmaceutical companies, and the use of secretive classification powers to keep the American people in the dark. Jeffrey Tucker says, look, it's not enough to just forget the whole thing like a bad dream. We can't just delete its page from the history books like the CDC has done and pretend like it's over and done and nothing needs to change. He says, we must deal with reality. These books take us to new levels of understanding. And that is the first step toward change. I've got a link in my show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. These are the show notes for January 15th, 2024. I hope you'll take a look at them. This is The Brian Hyde Show.